Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Hi, welcome to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. You might have heard there have been some boating going on, so we're going to talk about it a little bit. Uh, election Day for the midterms 2022 has come and gone. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Here's how I covered it. I invoked my New Year's Eve rule, which is I went to bed early. <laughs> I went to bed about 8.30. Yeah, I know I'm an old far whatever, but I've had a rough couple of days. I had five hours of dental work on Monday. I was at Duke most of the day on Tuesday. I didn't want to deal with it. And the play-by-play is the play-by-play. And usually I enjoy such things. But in this particular case, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to bed. I'll get up early. We'll do the show and we'll see where we are with the results. And that's where we are now as I sit and record this in the wee hours. Let's start with what we don't know. Some of the Western races are not called yet. Arizona, places like this, those ones aren't ready yet. Nevada, too close to call at this time because they don't actually start counting their votes until the last vote has been cast. So we don't know that one yet. Uh, Georgia looks like it's going to go to a runoff. It is very, very tight. That's what we expected. It does not look like either candidate's going to get quite to the threshold. So that's probably going to go to a runoff. We'll keep following that one in the Raphael Warnock, Herschel Walker race. And up in Michigan, it looks like Gretchen Whitmer is going to survive and win her reelection for governor there. But again, they haven't officially called it. So we're going to leave that one to the side. The really hotly contested ones out in Arizona. Um, Carrie Lake, Katie Hobbs for governor, of course, and Mark Kelly, Blake Masters for Senate. Don't have those yet. So we're going to have those set off to the side. We'll talk about them a little later. Of course, we are going to hold ourselves accountable. So here in about a week or so, when this all settles, we're going to have like Joe Zemanski and our friends who helped us do the run-up coverage, uh, Sarah Stook, others like that. We're going to have them back on. We're going to do what we got right, what we got wrong, and we're But here's what we do know. It does not look like the red wave is going to be as much of a wave as some people thought. Uh, there's a couple of seats that we know for sure are settled now. Fetterman in Pennsylvania has won. Uh, I expect there to be some legal challenges and stuff, but it sure looks like John Fetterman has won that seat. That's a flip. He will be the senator from Pennsylvania. In New Hampshire, Hassan has won, uh, keeping that seat. So that is a positive for the Democrats. So the margin for the Senate is getting really, really thin for a Republican takeover. Now, I thought it would be a plus one with a runoff. We're still looking like that may happen. Uh, J.D. Vance has one. Uh, there's a few others like this. Uh, McMullen out in Utah, interesting race with Mike Lee. Uh, this was something that I covered in the commentariat a lot more than on the ground because nobody really thought McMullen was going to win, but he had this weird um, quasi-alliance with some folks who were very 
anti-Trump, some folks that were very anti-MAGA, uh, which is all fine and well. But the idea that Mike Lee was going to lose that race to uh, Evan McMullen was ridiculous. He just he didn't have a chance. And that has proven out. Let's go down to Florida. Big ticket item because of what we might start talking about here immediately, which is the 2024 presidential race. Uh, Ron DeSantis. This was uh, not as soon as the polls closed, but by eight o'clock they had called this race. It was not close. Charlie Crist has now had the distinction of losing statewide office as a Republican, as an independent, and as a Democrat. So forevermore, let's call anybody that pulls that feet off the Christfecta, um, if you're able to do that. Uh, so Charlie Crist goes down to the feet. Also, Marco Rubio easily won his reelection down in Texas. Beto O'Rourke, tons of money, tons of press, same old result, got waxed by Greg Abbott in that race there. In North Carolina, Ted Budd uh, takes the Senate seat there. We also figured that would happen. Sherry Beasley running against him there. In New York, Hockle has won the governorship a little bit more margin than we were led to believe. We figured that would happen as well. And again, these Western races are not done yet. Oregon is going to be a very interesting place that we need to keep an eye on. Those races too close to call as of right now. Overall, though, what should we talk about? And we're going to get into the hard numbers when we have them because you won't have the hard numbers for a day or two. This is just kind of the sketchy outline. I want to highlight a race in Virginia. We talked about it with Joe Zemanski in our preview show. Abigail Spaumberger in Virginia. There was a couple of these Virginia House races. These are the 2018 seats that flipped for the blue wave that they were trying to flip for back for the red wave, and she survived. Now, all politics is local. We've established that. And politics depends on candidates. Looking at you, Dr. Oz, unfit for office as you was and you lost that race. Uh, the governorship of Pennsylvania, which could have been competitive if you hadn't uh, nominated, looking at you, GOP, a total wackadoo, unfit for office, bigoted, crazy person. And Josh Shapiro easily won that race. Local matters. Candidates matter. Abigail Spamberger, who's about as close to a centrist as you can get in the Democratic Party in the modern day, survived her race. There's going to be a few others of these scattered around the country, and that's part of what's going to blunt down what should have been probably a much better election year for Republicans than what it's turning out to be. There's going to be a lot of ink spilled and characters sent out and a lot of bloviating online about why this happened, how it happened, and what does it all mean? Well, for the next election, it doesn't mean a whole lot because the next election is going to be very, very different. You're going to have a GOP-controlled House with a very thin margin, um, and anything under 20, 30 seats is thin because you have bleed off on these votes. Kevin McCarthy is going to be the, presumably the Speaker of the House, and people don't trust him in his own party. He doesn't have respect. He's got a raucous caucus, um, to use a play on words, that's going to be hard to handle. And Joe Biden is president and the Democrats are going to get a run against that chaos and confusion. Also, uh, there is plenty of reporting out there that Donald Trump is going to de declare his candidacy for 2024 sometime in the next week or so. So next race is going to be very different from this race. But what you should take away from this race, when you turn down all the caterwauling and you turn down all the noise and you turn down everything that happened individually, and there's a lot going on out West that we don't know yet, and we don't know the makeup in the House and the Senate just yet. You can take this away. The candidate you run is the most important part of the election. Then it's the environment that they run in and having a message that fits it. And then 
it's not forgetting that politics is still local, even on a statewide race for like a Senate seat or for like a governorship or an attorney general in a state. You have to know the people you're representing. The same candidate in Georgia doesn't work in Pennsylvania, doesn't work in Nevada, doesn't work in Colorado, doesn't work in Michigan, doesn't work in Texas. You have to tailor your messaging. National politics is where all the money is. But if you can't take that national and dial it down for your local and state races, you're not going to win. A lot of lessons to learn from this. And we're not going to try to do them all right here, right now. We're going to take our time. We're going to parse them out. We're going to get to the information that matters. We're going to go through the hard data once we have those numbers in a couple days. And it looks like we're probably going to have a couple of runoffs to deal with in the near future. A lot of people are going to take this, slam it in the narratives, and immediately move on to 2024 and the next cycle. That's understandable. We understand that the beast and the machine keeps moving, and we got to move along with it. Don't forget to take a minute, once all this dies down in a day or two, to really dig back in and review. Review what you thought going into it. Review what you thought as it happened. And then we can have proper perspective on midterm 2022. You don't have it right now. Nobody really does. We will have it if we continue to try to get good information and not just listen to the noise. More Hurtel right after this. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Hurtel. Now, before I did writing and everything else, I actually made my living in transportation and logistics for the better part of 15 years until health things made God decide that I should be a writer and media folk instead. Anyway, I've done transportation most of my life. I love the career field. I love how it works because it's not the sexy stuff until something goes wrong and all of a sudden people pay attention to. We learned that during COVID, learned that during the port backup, learned that during different economic crises. There's a bubbling story that very few people are paying attention to, and I've been doing some media hits on it on Fox and some radio tours and things like that, but I still don't see it getting covered a lot. There's a potential for a freight railroad worker strike. Now, you remember back in September, uh, President Biden touted that they had an agreement in place between the union heads and the railroad companies and that they had averted a strike. Now, that was true, but that was only part of the truth. Here's the deal. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh didn't sit down. They did about a 22-hour negotiation, and they got an agreement. Here's the problem. That was step one of a two-step process. Those union leaders of 12 different unions, mind you, because this is very complicated, all 12 unions have to vote on and ratify what was agreed upon. And that process was going to take a while. And there's rules dictating union votes. And there's rules for things like cooling off periods when it comes to labor strike. Remember also, this has been going on for over three years now. 
the key sticking points. There is some pay raises in here. There's benefits in here. But the main thing is sick time. Most of these railroad workers don't get any at all. Sick time is very different from paid time off. Paid time off is at the discretion of the company. They can say, hey, the needs of the company, you can't have this time off. Sick time, you get it off because the doctor says so. See the difference? So that's what they're fussing over the main thing. By the way, I think the railroad workers have a point here. They should be getting this. Anywho, long story short, President Biden came out and made the announcement. Why did that happen in September? Because two reasons. One is most of the freight that ships for Christmas, which is a high profile economic time of the year, that's all already in transit right now because it'll start going on sale now that we're past Halloween. You've already seen all the Christmas stuff at. They didn't want that getting interrupted back in September for October, November, running up into Christmas. Number two, because of those union rules we talked about that pushed those union elections past the election date. In fact, safe uh, safer TD, the largest of these unions, isn't even going to vote on this thing until the 17th after the election. Now, two of the unions have already rejected this. So they're going to have to go back to the tail. Remember, only one of the 12 got to reject it because the other 11 aren't going to cross the picket line. And that uh, agreement in September was four of these unions that were being cantankerous about it. So what happens now? Nobody's quite sure because there's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, nobody really wants a strike. That would be bad for everybody. In fact, uh, the Safer Union came out and said their strike fund only has about four days worth of funding for everybody. So they're, they don't want to go on strike either. But nobody seems to really have a good idea how to solve this thing. Now, normally, the tiebreaker on things like this, Congress can legislatively order binding arbitration. The problem, we got a cantankerous Congress that is deeply divided and right after an election may not be in a mood to get involved in something like this. And even if they did, you'd still have to line up the votes for it. Is a lame duck Congress going to tackle this? They might, but we'll have to wait and see. On top of all that, the first day that these unions can legally strike, which would be a 35-day shutdown, December 22nd, three days before Christmas. I don't think anybody wants that. The ramifications of even a 35-day shutdown would be months recovering from. And it would have ripple effects throughout the entire economy. So this story isn't getting covered a lot, but it's out there bubbling. It's not getting covered because the people involved are pushing it past the election. They don't want it talked about because they got their parade for step one, knowing well and good step two was up in the air. Pay attention to this story. 30% of all the freight in America moves by rail. And that ripple effect goes to the ports, to trucking, to everything else. It's going to be a massive economic hit if this happens. It'll also shut down most passenger service because the freight companies own those tracks. Keep an eye on this story. Also, another story to keep an eye on, diesel fuel for a couple of reasons. One is there's a shortage of it. Two is we've been emptying the strategic petroleum reserves by President Biden to try to keep prices down. Three, diesel and heating fuel oil get refined together so the one affects the other. It's going to affect prices for heating fuel for the winter. Two things to pay attention to going forward. More hotel right after this. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay. Uh, we have our friend Michael on all the time. 
his side hustle is pretty cool. He does all this stuff out in space. So we always like to talk a little science and we haven't been able to talk science because we've been doing politics and other stuff. So let's talk a little space science, buddy. I just watched it again. Every time I watch it, I can't believe it's real, even though I know it's real. But I was watching um, the Falcon Heavy Boosters return and self-land upright again. I don't know how many times. I think they said this is the ninth time they've done it, something like that. Every time I see it, I still can't believe I'm watching it. And yet it's real. But the thing is, and you've discussed it before, but I want you to reiterate it because maybe because these things need to be repetitious in our minds before we really understand a technological advancement, right? That's one of the biggest leaps in space technology we've ever had is being able to do that and explain why that is yeah um elon musk is like kind of a prototypical smart person he has lots of ideas most of them are bad but occasionally he has one that is fantastic and the fantastic idea he had here was that throwing the booster of a rocket into the ocean is like throwing away a 747 every time you fly. And if you could land those safely, you would save millions and tens of millions of dollars on spaceflight, make spaceflight way cheaper. And it turned out the technological challenges were significant, but not insurmountable. If you have someone who's determined and will throw as much money as he can at it, that was a problem that was solvable. And so, yeah, every time I watch these, I feel like I'm watching a science fiction movie, that this is not something that we're used to rockets just sort of splashing into the ocean and capsules coming down and having a rocket land on its tail automatically is just, it seems like we're watching a science fiction movie, not reality. Yeah. Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. I want to ask it this way because, you know, I'm a history guy. I love my history. I think we get a little tunnel visioned on history. I think we still in the collective American consciousness think of the moonshot as cutting edge technology. And I don't think we've kind of crossed the barrier of understanding like the entire computing power of NASA at the time is probably about what your iPhone has now. Less like the, the technology jump to what we're doing now, we still think of the moon, like when we say achievements of mankind, oh, moonshot, like that's number one on just about everybody's list, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that was, you know, half a century ago and we've got so much more technology and so much more computing power. And the computing power is the really big deal here. Because the because the the R and D and the calculations being able to do those things faster, that's the big change that I don't. I think that's kind of on us though, and maybe NASA and SpaceX should educate the public more on this. the The technology is so far beyond there, but we don't have the physical achievements optically to put with that advancement. Is that a fair way to put all this? Um, I, I would say kinda. Um, many of the fundamental problems in space travel have not changed. If you're going to send something to the moon, you still need a big honking rocket. Um, I mean, that's what the Artemis mission is about. Is that a scientific it, term, big honking yes. rocket? How many yeah. honks was a Saturn V exactly? What is this a unit of measurement or of space or time? Um, the, uh, but we still need, there are certain physics aspects of this that we need to put things into space. Now, being able to return stages, being able to use much smarter computers, that cuts the cost overall down. But we still need to make some more fundamental breakthroughs if we're actually going to send people into space on a regular basis. But I think the cost now is about a thousand, a few thousand dollars a pound to put things into space. And we need to cut that significantly if, uh, or I need to lose a lot of weight if we're going to uh, be putting people into space. Um, 
so but i do think like one a better illustration of it maybe would be the uh recent mars landers where you had if there if you haven't seen it you can google seven minutes of terror to see the video nasa made about how they're landing things on mars now and it's insane they have this re-entry they have these parachutes they have this sky crane that drops it on all of that has to be automated because it takes a few minutes for the signal to reach us from Mars, so it, it has to be robotic. We have a, a flyer on Mars, a little robot that flies around, a little drone. And that, that I think, is a lot more illustrative of just how far we have come since the Viking days when we just dropped a probe on there and it would just sit there and do a little bit of surveillance, and that was it, where we have these missions now that go to these and roam around for years and do all this explanation. And we're actually going to eventually have a mission that will send uh, rocks back from Mars to Earth uh, to be uh, more fully investigated. So I think if you look at the exploration of the solar system that we've been doing, that's where you really see the breakthroughs of the last 50 years. Let's talk some old school uh, space tech, which I know you actually have a little bit of a passion for. The Voyagers are still one of my favorite things to check up on. Like I, I actually go to the website every now and then just how far that quantify it for us non-mathematical non-scientific people like me just how remarkable you know <laughs> you're sending something up and that you know let's go back in time a little bit you know you talk about your iphone having computer power i mean that your standard microwave convection oven probably has more circuitry than the voyagers have on them and yet this thing just keeps pumping along and doing its job and now it's out there farther than we ever dreamed it would be I find this a remarkable piece of tech, even though it's kind of old school. It's kind of boring to some folks. I just find it amazing. Well, it's interesting. Um, uh, a fellow astronomer, Tim Hamilton, and I had a discussion on Twitter yesterday about what, what what is the oldest code running right now, oldest computer code. And someone brought up Voyager, which has been in space for 45 years. To give you an idea of how long that is, the people who know how Voyager works are retiring or dying. And NASA is really worried that they're not going to have enough people who understand how the spacecraft works to keep it going. And it's it's billions of miles out there. It's outside the solar system, actually. It's into interstellar space. And it's still sending signals back. Uh, there are papers being published based on Voyager data uh, that it's it's taking of the outer solar system. And we're learning a lot about our sun and the solar cycle uh, from what's from the data Voyager sending back. So that is it. It is a remarkable spacecraft. Uh, the, both of Voyagers. Yeah, Hammurabi would like a word on that oldest running code. By the way, um, <laughs> I remember as a kid. You know, I'm 42. I remember as a kid, we kept talking about the gold records they were putting on them. Remember that? Like, yep. for so you know, it's been in the national consciousness so much. I think we just kind of forgot about it. But it's pretty cool that we have something in interstellar space, and it works, and it still works. Yeah, that's amazing. All right, we know the SpaceX stuff. I want to ask you about the private space travel real quick because it was a new thing. We've got a data point now. We've been doing it for a while. You know, we've got, you know, the different companies are doing it. They're put sending people up, coming right back down in different things. What's your perspective on it now? You said it was going to be a net good. It raises awareness, even though some of it's kind of, you know, celebrity stunts and stuff like this. You still think overall that it was going to be a good. We've got a year or two of them doing it now. You still feel that way? Does it feel like it's going anywhere else or does it feel like that's kind of plateaued for the moment? I think it will be a while before that kind of technology is within the reach of even, you know, upper class citizens, let alone middle class. But I, I think that the technology will continue to approve. I mean, two years is not a lot, 
on the time scale of technology. I, I think if um, that we're going to see more and more efforts to make space travel cheaper and to make it more reliable and safer that for the so that it can be within reach. I mean, even if we ever got to the point where space tourism was a thing, this would be you know a once in a lifetime thing, the cost of a car or something like that. So it will never be like a trip to Cleveland or something like that. But um, I I do think we continue to make progress around this. It's it when I mean, we're it's not on the short time. Well, I don't think I'll be able to travel as a space in my lifetime, but maybe my kids will. Yeah, what was this? I forget who or I would cite this, but they basically said like until it's first class airline type fees, it's not going to be a mass marketing type thing. So until you get it down in that, you know, let's say under ten thousand, get it down in that five to ten thousand dollars a seat. That's not it's not going to be mass marketable. But you get it under a hundred thousand K, you you got a lot of people that, you know, those worldwide cruises, those are 30, 40, 50 grand. You'd have a lot of people saying, Oh yeah, this is a life savings thing once in a minute. You'd open up a large swath of people just doing it that kind of way, wouldn't you? Yeah, um, I actually had a, a, a poll on my Twitter account once asking how much people would pay to go into space. And I think the general consensus was between one and ten thousand dollars was where, where people were thinking. I don't think we'll get down to that range, but I do think we'll get down to the what you said, like you know, round the world cruises or something like that, where this could be a once in a lifetime thing for people. And I wouldn't want to see space become the exclusive purview of the super rich. But for a while, that's kind of what it's going to be. Well, I mean, that's how airline travel started. Yeah. And, you know, so that's just I think that's going to be somewhat the nature of the bee, which is why I defended the rich people, you know, the Bransons of the world and the Bezos of the world. Like, no, you get you've got to let them break the ice, even though it's going to be a little exclusive because there's nobody else to do it. And we've talked about that before. Uh, Michael Siegel, give us something we don't know about. Um, you always surprise me with stuff because you're smarter than me and I don't know this stuff is coming, but uh, what should we be looking for? I know the web space the telescope, the pillars of creation photo, I think got that actually got going viral because it was just such an amazing image. Stuff like that. What should we be watching for in the next couple of months as far as space goes? Um, I think the big things, web is going to be sort of dominating the news. That Some of the big results on the first stars and the first galaxies and star formation are just going to start coming out right now they're they're sort of putting out the the, the pretty pictures of stuff we know is interesting but uh there are they were oversubscribed by a giant factor for their first year of operations and so there's a lot of people gathering data now for big programs that are going to start coming out so i i would i would pay attention to uh so i would look for a lot more hubble uh excuse me jwst news in the next uh, few months. And really some of the big questions that we wanted JVST to answer are gonna start, we're gonna start getting the first uh, data on those. Sadder topic. Um, we talked about the observatory down in Puerto Rico. You wrote about it. Our friend Dennis Saunders wrote about it because he's actually from there and been there a couple of times. Um, doesn't look like it's going to be replaced and or rebuilt. How much of a loss is something like that? We understand time moves on and, you know, things can't always stay the same. But, you know, we've seen other facilities get up. You know, Green Bank just got upgraded again. 
in West Virginia. looks like it's probably going to be there for a long, long time to come. When you lose a piece like that, and you know it personally because you've ran studies down there, you've been there, what does that do when you lose a scientific tool like that? Is there something that's just next man up and you put something else in, or is it a loss and you got to kind of adjust? It, it's just a loss. Um, there is never a shortage of projects to do on telescopes. We have, you know, I do a lot of work on small telescopes, you know, 36 inch, 40 inch telescopes, where we're still finding them useful. They're still being used all the time. And so even though Arecibo was an older facility, although it's, uh, instrumentation had been upgraded, that's a capability that we can't replace. And so um, I, on the one hand, I understand why they're making the decision they're doing. On the other hand, I also think it's an unfortunate decision, especially because of the experts and personnel we have down there in Puerto Rico and what it means to the island to have that facility there. I think, uh, I think it's a big loss. And there are other facilities that will fill the gap as best they can, but this was a unique facility. So you don't think there's any hope either? Um, I am dubious that, that they will they will do that. Money tends to be to be tight, and rebuilding that facility would be quite expensive. So uh, I wouldn't. It I'd be delighted if it happened, but I'm not banking on it. Yeah, it's a sad situation. All right, that was a sad note. End us on a happy note, though, because you have this wonderful YouTube channel that is doing gangbusters. Because you've got you know all these thousands of followers now compared to my dozens of followers. You know, give me a little shine there, buddy. What are you doing? Uh, but I love the YouTube channel. It's really taken off. That's why I want to ask you though, is like, obviously because you are, you know, an astrophysicist, you've got the credentials, you've actually flown spacecraft. So you get, you've got some street cred when you go to talk about these things. It's got to lighten your heart though, that even though it's goofy and you're talking about sci-fi stuff and not hard science, that's still entry level science. I remember uh, James Duhon who played Scotty talks about how, how many engineering students over the years would come up to him and tell him like, Oh, I went into engineering because of you. And he, He's like, man, I'm a retired sergeant. I don't know anything about engineering, but, you know, wounded at D-Day, by the way, for folks that don't know. You need to go read his Jimmy Duhon's story. He's amazing. He was actually missing fingers on his hand from D-Day. That's got to lighten your heart, though, that people, even though it's entry-level science through sci-fi, that's still got to make you feel good, right? Yeah, um, the response, I mean, we're still a pretty small channel, about 4,000 subscribers. So uh, j just enough to... to, to uh, Humble brag alert. <laughs> uh, just enough to make me nervous that I'm going to mess something up, but not enough to to make me famous. But um, it uh, it is heartening that a lot, I get a lot of really positive comments from people saying they really like the the way I explain these ideas and they find it interesting. And my last one was on multiverses, and so I got deep into like quantum mechanics and stuff like that. But uh, and, but people seem to like it. So um, so it's uh, it's it's very it's gratifying to know and for me i started the channel because i like because it's the kind of channel i like to see i like to see people who are knowledgeable about something sharing their enthusiasm about a subject like whether it's music or movies or military strategy or history or whatever it is and uh so for me it was kind of just mostly an outlet to share my enthusiasm about science and science fiction and uh, and seeing that that uh, has resonated with some people is very gratifying. Yeah, it's a great channel. Make sure you check it out. We will link to it. Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay, completely different topic for a minute. I want to get your thoughts on a couple of things real quick. Scientific, okay, because you're a science guy, right? <sighs> I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, 
which was the worst and the most harmful to science? Was it the believe the science or was it the scientists themselves and their conduct? I think it was the believe the science. I think um, that uh, I think a lot of scientists were trying to be clear on what we didn't know and the limitations of what we know. And there were a few like um, I, I've talked previously about um, a few uh, scientists who went on Twitter a year into the pandemic and said, OK, here's the things I got wrong. Um, I think that once this got into fed into the media machine, and especially once you had some scientists cross over into that media machine, it doesn't deal, the media machine and the political machine don't deal well with uncertainty. They don't deal well with, this is the best information we have. They, they want certainty. They want, and they want uh, absolutes. And they want to say, this is absolutely what we, and you know, I, I think that's where the, the major errors were made. But again, that's not unique to COVID. I mean, we have, you know, we have a lot of hysterias in this country. We have a lot of things we do to mitigate what are very small dangers and very low risks uh, that we get uh, tend to be hysterical about. I and mean, one of the things I've blogged about quite a bit is the uh, hysteria over sex trafficking. It's not that sex trafficking doesn't happen. It's that the way people think about it and the way they try to prevent it is completely disconnected from how it actually happens and the scale of the problem. And so, again, this is more of a dysfunction of our system that was exposed. And COVID-19, again, as I said earlier, was the biggest crisis since World War II. Crises have a tendency to bring things into focus. There were a lot of things that were exposed by COVID that we were doing stupidly or wrong that we still haven't fixed. Like I remember early on, Massachusetts, when they were having their big outbreak, said, all right, we'll allow doctors who are licensed in other states to work here because we, we don't have enough doctors. You know, we, won't, we won't require them to have a Massachusetts license. Like, well, why don't you do that overall? We have 50 states and they have pretty good standards. Why do I need a different license for each state? This seems like a waste of time. And that's just one example. And I think that, again, it, it, this exposed our tendency to want to talk in certainties, to make our people who disagree with us look as bad as possible, that they don't care about the problem or they actually are in favor of the problem. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about like the real grifters, like, you know, people we've talked about who are out there trying to make a buck off skepticism. I'm talking about the average person who wants to know what's going on here. What do I need to do? Wait, you told me this last week. What about this? And so forth. Yeah, I think I learned that lesson the hard way when I wrote a piece about the mask debate very early on in the pandemic. And I wasn't even all I was saying was like, because that was when they were just throwing everybody on the ventilators and they were immediately dying after you put them on the ventilators because they didn't know how to treat the illness. Right. Mm -hmm. And there, and so I talked a lot about the ventilators from personal experience and they're all like, well, what do you know about? I'm like, well, this is how I know you didn't read the piece because there's literally a picture of me on a ventilator in the middle of the piece. Like there's yeah. a picture yeah. of me in the hospital bed on a ventilator tied to the bed. And that's when I was like, you know, this this is a good way to tell whether people are serious. Like, like I know whether you read it or not because you're starting an awful that. I'm like, there's a picture. You don't even have to read the article. You can just scan it and see the picture. I'm like, oh, he was on a ventilator. That kind of stuff, I think, really does a lot of harm. It also exposes people. Let's be frank. Part of the problem with COVID was it just exposed a lot of people. Yep. Yeah. So, anyway, I think science, we've talked about this before, but just to reiterate the point and put a bow on a lot of this. 
I think science has just been behind the curve on adapting to the modern world, especially social media that like, look, you can't just put letters behind your name. Now people can review your work and they can search your social media and you better be consistent. I, and that's not just them, you know, celebrities are having to do this. Politics are having to learn to do this. The news media is finding out the hard way right now that you've got to do this. I think that was a big part of it too, is I think they're just not used to mass communication. And they're having to adapt to it. And it was probably a painful lesson, but I think it was probably a necessary lesson in some ways. Yeah. And I think some people, uh, like uh, one of the ones I cite a lot is Ellie Murray, Dr. Ellie Murray. They came out looking good because they were, you know, reasonable and talked about uncertainties and so forth. And some people, uh, you know, were way too panicky and way too certain about those things. And they came out looking bad. And uh, I think that the, scientific community will have to take some time to look back and say, okay, this is not the last pandemic we're going to have. This is not the next, last time people are going to have to listen to us on a critical scientific issue. How can we communicate better with stating this is what we know, but also conveying this is the best information we have. And as with all science, it is subject to change. We're, we, we should act on this, but we should be aware that more information is going to come in. Yeah. Dr. Michael Siegel, the most appearances on this program ever. We're going to keep that going as long as we can because he's really, really sharp and he's becoming a multimedia, multi-platform superstar with his YouTube channel. Also writes at Ordinary Time. Let folks know what you got going on, where they can follow you, all the different things you've got going on. Your latest that we talked about uh, a little bit earlier, the throughput, that is up at Ordinary-Times.com as it is every Thursday, the YouTube channel, your Twitter. Also wrote a good little book, by the way. You got to go pick it up. Let everybody know what you got going on there, sir. Uh, sure. Um, and Ordinary Times is a good gateway to everything I do. All my videos I post there uh, so that people can find them. I'm I, Actually, now that I have a few subscribers, uh, you can just go to YouTube and Google my name, Michael Siegel Astronomy, and you'll find uh, my video channel. And uh, hopefully you'll find something there that you find interesting. Uh, join the ongoing 2000 comment debate over what the best spaceships in science fiction are. Um, but yeah, that's that's the best way to find me is usually through ordinary times. We're going to do that one where we talk about the crew and the uh, the military setup of those space captains too. I'm, I can't wait to get in on that. That's going to be a fun one, yeah, Doctor Michael Siegel. Yeah, he was my guest. It, it, I I just always love. We get so obsessed with the. You just proved it. They get so obsessed with the ships. You forget you got to have a crew to run that thing. Yep. Does the crew match the ship? Because then the ship doesn't work and doesn't make any sense. But we'll get yeah, into that. Not all officers either. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me. Like, I'm a retired sergeant. Don't get me started on lieutenants. Like, all the lieutenants are super short. I'm like, no, lieutenants are like baby giraffes. They can't even walk in a straight line. You got to like hold them up. It's ridiculous. Like that's. See, I'm giving you all the good channel stuff. I'm not going to give it to you for free. You're going to have to subscribe to his YouTube channel. Dr. Michael Siegel. Love it, buddy. Thanks for the time, sir. All right. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Welcome back to Hertel. Let's talk about money and politics real quick because it is an election season. No, I'm not talking about donor money, although that's part of it. Um, do you realize the last midterm election, I went back and looked, 2018, do you know how much money was spent on that election? $5.7 billion. 
And we're on track that we're probably going to spend more than that in this midterm election. So where's all that money going? There's a thing called diminished returns. There's only so much money these campaigns can actually spend. So why is it getting more and more expensive? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. Politics is very, very big business in America. You already know that it drives a lot of the news media, including this show. We spend a lot of time talking about politics, although we're not really getting rich off it, although we'd like to. We take PayPal, DMs open. But money in politics isn't just the buzzword of, oh, evil funding money. There's a little bit of that. That's true. There's plenty of corruption. But mostly there is now a power structure in place in America where politics is just really big business. All those networks, any kind of media platform now, they get a nice bump every election season by taking in ad revenue. And in some cases, tons of it. There was a report, remember when Michael Bloomberg ran for president for three months and dumped millions and millions and millions of dollars into it? He actually moved the spreadsheets on TV stations and TV networks because he dumped so much advertising money in in such a short period of time. It was their own little line items. This is a boon to media, news media, the commentariat, print media, anything you want to say. If they can sell political advertisements, they're going to do really well on that. That's part of business. Then there's the consultant class, the folks that constantly have to be campaigning because that's how they make their money as professional campaigners. There's more of them than ever, and they're charging more than ever. They got to get paid. They got to show some way to get paid. So that means they have more and more metrics and more and more measurements and more and more candidates to try to lure in and hire them. And I'm fine for it. I hope they all make a lot of money. I'm all for people making money in America. Get your hustle on and do your job. I'm all for it. But that's part of where all this money's going to. And then there's the fact that these political parties love moving this money around because it helps them. There's certain ways that certain campaigns can do and move their money around. So even a long shot candidate, we've seen this with presidentials, the easiest way to see it. Even a long shot candidate, you understand the financials of a campaign, right? You can fundraise for your campaign. You sign off almost all your living expenses during a campaign off to the campaign. And then at the end of campaign, you might have some debt. But if you're really shrewd and you did well, maybe you can get an opponent to pay that off for you or you can write it off. Or if you're really good with your money, you can hold on to that money and roll it forward into some other project or you can do what former President Trump's done and roll it into your legal fund. There's all kinds of ways to move money around. Money laundering would be a little too strong of a term. But if you want to move around massive amounts of money and fundraise it and be able to use it later, running a political campaign is a heck of a good way to do it and to keep it out of prying eyes. And besides, as long as you're campaigning, it looks like you're doing something, right? That's another reason there's so much money in politics. Biggest reason there's money in politics? Nobody said anything to stop it. Nobody's doing anything to stop it. You realize it's voluntary for you to give to one of these campaigns, right? Most of these political causes, political parties, and candidates do not need your donation. But we keep sending it to it. And that's your right. If you want to do that, more power to you. Knock yourself out. Just understand they don't need it. And as long as we're feeding this beast, it's going to get bigger, fatter, and it's going to get hungrier. Maybe at some point we, the public of all parties and all stripes, maybe we should stop giving these people so much money. Make them start working for a living again. Maybe make them earn our votes and earn our contributions instead of just writing blank checks for the cause because the buzzwords are nice. That would probably change politics a lot more than any regulation would. 
but like a lot of things, like the sports teams where they only start changing things when the fans stop showing up and buying tickets or stop watching, that's what it'll probably take to really change politics, especially the money in it. Yeah, your small contribution probably won't make that much of a difference. But imagine if we demanded the same performance from our politicians, we demanded from our sports teams and spent our money accordingly. What kind of world would that look like? More hotel right after this. Okay, I admit it. I get way too cynical about politics and, well, just about everything else in this stage of life. It's part of my journey to trying to get to curmudgeonhood as quickly as I possibly can without losing all of my integrity. But what about these first-time voters? We've talked a lot about the issues and the politicians and the people who've been doing this for a while. Let's go out to Cupertino, California. This is the Monte Vista High School paper, the LS Stoic. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I hope I am. But this is the student-run paper. It's written by uh, Minja Kang and Jason Chu. This is dated November 8th, Election Day. And it's about their first-time voters. Cupertino's general municipal elections will be held November 8th for the election. Midterm elections will also take place on the same day for the election of senators, representatives for Congress. I love how they started with the local and then the national. This is cool. The midterms will also provide voters the opportunity to vote on state provisions. And remember, these are students writing about students here. With many seniors in MVHS, Becoming eligible to vote on election day, some of them have chosen to participate in the election and cast a vote for the first time. Senior Maya Mazari said she is excited to express her voice in the community through voting. Senior Rhoda Iyer, who also will be eligible to vote in the upcoming election, said he has always loved to follow politics, especially during important elections. And now he's looking forward to casting a ballot himself and saying he wants to know what issues are measured are in questions during the election. However, social science teacher Hillary Barron cautions students about their first time voting. Having voted in both local and national level elections, she explains that one of the challenges first time voters such as Mazzara and I might face is difficulty understanding the information presented on the ballot. There's a lot on the ballot, she said. There's a quote beyond the candidates we're familiar with. While students might have opinions on some of the ballot items, other items are more obscure, hard to make decisions like we are voting for the Supreme Court California justices, and students might not have ever even heard of their names before. Barron encourages students to do research before voting in order to make sure they make educated decisions. Lord, ain't that a good idea. Advising them to use critical thinking skills and question the legitimacy of information shared through social media. She emphasizes that students must inform themselves through credible sources, such as local news outlets or community or town hall discussions. While Missouri is excited to cast her first vote. She agrees with Barron that she will have to do, quote, do more research and think deeply. God, I like this kid. About every decision she will make on the ballot, despite already keeping up with the community issues and events, Mazari says she considers it important to understand a candidate's motives and funding before voting for them. These kids get it. I love it. Motives and funding? Hey, what do we always say? Follow the money. You're going to get pretty close to the truth, right? Actions, not words. Motives, that'll tell you how people think. Future's bright. Kids get it. Back to the piece. Iyer echoes Missouri, adding that being able to vote for the first time has pushed him to learn more about the candidates and the propositions in contention for the election. Before I was eligible to vote, this is a quote, 
I would only know what propositions were being voted on based on advertisements on TV. But now I try to diversify when I get my news from so that I can see all the different perspectives and make an unbiased choice in who I support in the elections. Wait a minute. Go to applaud. These kids get it. Only adults would do all this. While they look forward to participating in the election, both Mazzari and I are not without concerns. Mazzari has doubts about the importance of her vote, saying that because of Cupertino's like-mindedness, remember again, California, this is, you know, one party. This is a very, very blue area. Uh, she believes her vote might not be significant on a larger scale. I, on the other hand, is worried about making mistakes on election day. Quote, one thing I'm nervous about is misreading the directions on the ballot or accidentally marking something wrong. Ballots can be confusing for the first time, so I hope I do not make any er errors in understanding how to use them. Despite such concerns, Barron emphasized the importance of voting. It says the process becomes less daunting with more experience. I do think it is important, especially on the local level, Barron said. We tend to get lower voter turnout in local elections, so everyone who casts a ballot has a lot of power in the decisions that get made. Voting can be hard, but I think the more you do it and the more you educate yourself about the topics, the easier it gets. This is a student newspaper out of Monte Vista High School, Cupertino, California. Love it, love it, love it. Good perspective. They get it. Well done, folks. Welcome to representative government. I think you'll serve us well. That'll do it for her tell today. Election day was over. Let's get on to the next election day. But there's more important things besides just elections. Just remember that in the craziness over the next weeks and months and days as we try to sort out what just happened. We've got races that'll continue to go. We're going to have some runoffs. And then we start the presidential election. And that'll do it for Herd Tell. As always, love to hear from you. HerdTellShow at gmail.com. Send us an email, HerdTellShow on the Twitter. You can DM us and follow us there. Also, my Twitter handle, 4 for the Fire, and those of our guests is always in the lower third graphics. If you're watching on the YouTube, if you're listening on the podcast, there'll be links for you to follow both the writing of the folks we have on and us and our social media. This only works because you listen, and we so greatly appreciate you. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world. We hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. We can't wait to see you again for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. 
From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.